and welcome to Perspectives, the APT's podcast which explores contemporary issues related to torture prevention and dignity in detention. I'm Almudena Garcia, APT's Digital Communication Associate, and this episode is the first in a series on the Mendes Principles on Effective Interviewing, a new tool to help end coercive interviewing. The Mendes Principles were released in May 2021, and our Deputy Secretary General, Audrey Olivier Moralt, spoke with Wilder Taylor, head of the National Preventive Mechanism of Uruguay, who helped draft the principles. After four years on consultations and drafting, involving experts in policing, investigations, human rights, psychology and other disciplines, we now have the Mendes Principles. They are designed to support investigators, collect reliable information, not a confession, using MAPOT-based interviewing techniques. They also uphold the rights of those being interviewed by ensuring that key safeguards are respected in practice. Our guest today, Wilder Taylor, has decades of experience in torture prevention. He's worked for organizations like Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, and International Commission of Jurists. He was also a founding member of the UN Subcommittee on the Prevention of Torture. In Uruguay, he leads the National Preventive Mechanism, visiting places of detention all over the country and advocating for changes to address the risk factors that lead to torture. Naturally, he was one of the people asked to help draft the Mendes Principles. Well, I, I was invited by, by Professor Mendes himself and by uh, Mark Thompson, former Secretary General of the APT, to join a drafting group. In my particular case, I focused on legal standards and particularly on the issue of guarantees at the moment of detention and thereafter. Uh, what I did find uh, very inspiring, I would say, was that both the group and the steering committee that was charged with reviewing the, the draft was truly multidisciplinary. But, but you know, the, these standard setting exercises tend to be dominated by lawyers. So I felt that it was a very good experience to find policemen uh, and, and police women and individuals with police and police oversight experience, as well as, for example, neurological scientists in the group. Uh, in my opinion, uh, it greatly benefited the final outcome. Uh, we, we ended up with a more diverse and adaptable text. And I think that's one of the big assets of the, of the Mendes principle. You have worn so many different hats during your career. You've been involved in many torture prevention initiatives. What do you see as the added value of the Mendes principles, both to prevent torture but also for law enforcement officials? Well, the value is, um, I would say you have a multifaceted value. The principles codify new standards and also combine them with some very well-established international standards on prevention of torture. So there is a mix of norms, like the absolute prohibition with procedural safeguards, but they come together with more novel and uh, 
innovative standards on information gathering, for example. They tend to be, these principles tend to be quite proactive in terms of showing in a very elaborated manner the way forward for an investigator to say how they can find the information they are seeking. And this, that presents a significant advantage over other standards and norms that will not show the way ahead. For example, this, this has been a, a problem for prevention professionals in, in their daily work. I mean, we tend to confront police who uh, say, well, that's okay, I cannot do that. But then how do I do it? That's the question that you receive. And that's the answer you need to craft in your recommendation. So now we have a way forward to show that is codified, that can be efficient, uh, professional, and mindful of human rights of individuals. So that's, uh, that's very important, both for uh, prevention professionals and for law enforcement officials. You see, the six principles can go straight uh, or, or inspire, but they can even go straight into codes of conduct and uh, oper- standard operating procedures or, or directives of different types. So I think that's very, very important. Then there is another thing that I, I would not want to overlook. It's only a few years ago, only very few years ago, that the world and the human rights movement, and particularly the West and the United States, we were confronted with a government-sponsored doctrine that embraced coercive interrogations as a reaction to, to the terrorist attacks of September 11th. And there was that moment, the terrible moment, I would say, for human rights, in which the benefits of coercion were discussed openly in the media and policymaking and academic circles. And while I would say that that line did lose quite a lot of credibility, my hope is that the Mendes principles will put that debate to rest because this is such a good, coherent, and well-articulated alternative formulation, a pro-human rights formulation. That is an enormous advantage uh, for all of us, and and that's probably one that uh, I rated very high. This is such a powerful point, Wilder, that we need to shift mindsets about the fact that coercion simply doesn't work. It might extract a confession, It might extract what people want to hear, but it doesn't get the truth. Now, as we've been sharing the Mendes principles with different groups, one question we've been asked is whether these principles are applicable across different regions. For example, people see them mostly as applicable to police, to law enforcement, while in the Americas, your region, public prosecutors are often the one leading investigations. What's your take on that? Well, actually, I do think that it's the wrong question that you have been asked. Because the problem is, is, is the principles are valid regardless of who is conducting the interview. What matters is that there is an interviewing or in an interrogation process underway. Now, whether there is a public prosecutor or a police officer, both may be looking the wrong way for a confession as their preferred option regardless of whether that reflects the truth or not. So the truth is that confession-seeking practices are very well entrenched 
in law enforcement culture and, and others with investigative mandates. So that, that frequently leads to coercion. So the principles would apply to all situations involving both prosecutors and other law enforcement officials. But let's not forget also that there are other functions such as intelligence, gathering through interviews or other law enforcement activities that in some countries are uh, uh, in Latin America uh, are entrusted to the military uh, in, the, in, the, in the fight against drugs, for example. Uh, so in all these cases, the principle will apply. So I think the question is not who is acting. The question is, what do you want to achieve? Let me put it this way. Do you want to obtain a confession at any cost? Or do you want to embark in a truth uh, seeking exercise that might be more complex, but will also be more professional and fair, and will eventually lead you to a set of information that you can trust. That, that's the question. Now, in addition to helping draft the Mendes principles, you also lead a national preventive mechanism in Uruguay. These principles will be very important in their work especially the engagement with the authorities there. So what has been the reaction of your team members to the principles? Uh, well, I mean, uh, you know, every new standard is always met with some uh, curiosity and a certain degree of skepticism uh, uh, until they prove their usefulness. Uh, so that, that, that's the reality. But this is not only about the Mendes principles. This is about standard setting everywhere, all the time. Uh, however, uh, for the national preventive mechanism uh, being on the ground and uh, having, to, having to interact on a daily basis with law enforcement officials, I think they have found it uh, very, very helpful. I mean, the truth, they are finding them now very helpful, as you know well, because we have been conducting some training uh, operation with you in, in the APT and other colleagues. I think we are greatly benefiting from that. Uh, how that happens? Well, in Uruguay, in my case, we do have a permanent operation here of visiting police stations. It's quite common that the, the complaints arise in the cells of the police station against the kind of treatment people have received. And then when you go out and start discussing that with the head of the police station, you, you, you can actually quote the principles. Sometimes you quote the entire instrument. Sometimes you just quote one principle and say, look, I mean, uh, you should understand that it doesn't work. Screaming at those kids is not going to work. It's not going to, you're not going to get what you want. And this is not just human rights parlance. This is proven scientifically. And so, and then you start talking about these kind of things. Sometimes you get funny reactions, but I can say the more professional the law enforcement official is, the more interested and curious they become. You mentioned that sometimes when something new comes along, there can be skepticism or reticence or even distrust. What kind of challenges do you see with regards to the implementation of the Mendes principles? 
Oh, well, uh, the, 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 the problem is implementation itself. The, the pro- it's always implementation. And there is a certain paradox that the principles being a very practical tool because they are extremely practical. They do bring some complexities uh, with them. You know, the first thing is, is the natural complexity. They are new. Uh, and then, again, you have to explain it. Uh, second, I would say, is this complexity of having a tool that is inspired in a multidisciplinary effort? Because that changes the language in which you say the thing. And even law enforcement officials are much more used to, to the legal jargon. And we shouldn't forget one very important problem is that we work against torture and against expression of brutality and force. And this is a phenomenon that is present in many law enforcement agencies. So you do have sectors who will believe that the way forward is violence and that the way forward is coercion because they thought it was efficient uh, or because they were trained in our countries, uh, people who were trained during um, the military governments and and that, that philosophy, it's there. So you need to give the debate with them, but we, we have to accept that there may be a resistance as well, and they will not always be just good faith. I mean, they were just people who want to do the, the wrong way. One of the other issues people have raised with us is a concern about the cost of implementation. They say, well, we're very interested in the principles, but they're going to cost us quite a lot of money because you have to invest into training. It is something you've come across. And what would you say in response? I think the budget is an easy way out for those who do not want to use new standards. And they say, well, you know, preventing torture is a very expensive thing. And you say, well, have you ever considered how expensive it is for your society practicing torture rather than preventing it? And, uh, and they don't have an answer for that. I think we, we need to be proactive. Uh, we have a task there that is to elaborate, to, to work with also with budget specialists to see how expensive this can really be compared to the money law enforcement agencies are spending on far less efficient methods. Because if you see training exists, investigations, they do exist because they happen all the time. Places for interrogation, they actually do. You do find they may even be more expensive because they have to be secret and clandestine. So that's also important. I think a good part of the cost will be offset by swapping the dedication of those funds. And then there's the other thing that is, well, uh, yes, uh, it, it may cost money. I mean, protecting human rights and fighting crime, both things are costly. I mean, none of them is for free. But it is also the mission of the state to, to do both things, both things on an equal footing. So I... Um, I think this is something we have to confront. And maybe in this period of the Mendes principles, 
I think we should offer ways forward by showing, okay, this is what you spend uh, when you budget for your classical techniques. This is what would cost you to train your people. Here's the seed money and then challenge them. Say, why don't you make an experience? I mean, start using this in one department. Go to, I don't know, serious crimes. Uh, start there with those techniques. See what happens. Let's check whether it costs really more or not. I think we have to receive the challenge and we have to put forward a challenge because it's an easy challenge. Uh, so I think that uh, our answer should be as scientifically based as the principles are. And uh, I'm sure we will prevail. And can I add something more about the principles that uh, I think is a unique feature? I do rate very, very high on these principles that there is a section on vulnerabilities. That is something that you are not going to find in other human rights standards. I mean, that those have been grouped and there has been an effort to understand them as a phenomenon that is not just static, but also dynamic, that understands that a reason for vulnerability may come up during an interview, that, that being exhausted can render people vulnerable, that it's not just a status. I think this is a very important principle to say. I was delighted when I saw that this issue was brought in, because when you make when you review the entire collection of human rights codification, you, you find standards, for example, on children or on women or on those who suffer disabilities. But you don't find this in relation to a particular activity as such. This brings us to a next level, and I hope it will also mark an example for further standard setting. Wilder Taylor is the head of the National Preventive Mechanism of Uruguay. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Perspectives. We'll be back soon with another episode in this series exploring the Mendes Principles. And if you have an idea for us to cover in Perspectives, we'd love to hear from you. Contact us via email on apt at apt.ch or find us on our social media, Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you for listening and we look forward to your company next time.